Holy Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we ask through the power of the Holy Spirit this day, we are sanctified, we are purified. We are made holy by your word, such that we follow Christ Jesus in love evermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is a day of glory. It's the day in which we remember, we call to remembrance, Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts, the Christian church was born. It's a day of glory under the Holy Spirit because everything we've been talking about the last three weeks have come to fruition on this day. We've talked about how the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and brings one to repentance how the Holy Spirit sanctifies through the Word, and how the Holy Spirit equips those who are not only called but sent out, and everything came together that day. And so it is a glory unto the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is pointing everything to Christ Jesus and His gospel. And see, the Holy Spirit will glorify Christ Jesus and his gospel. So Jesus is glorified. And when Jesus is glorified, who else is glorified? The Father. The Father is glorified. So we've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are glorified. It is a wonderful day of glory. So we're going to cover about half of Peter's speech his sermon, his testimony. But before we do that, my guess is that a lot of people don't know really the historical context of Pentecost. What is Pentecost? So let's cover some of that first, okay? Get some background, because we want to start connecting some of the dots. So Pentecost, a day of glory. Pentecost means 50th. So, Penta, Pentecost, 50th. It was called the Feast of Weeks, but also became known as the Feast of Harvest. In the Old Testament, this is a harvest, a festival that God ordained. And it was to take place 50 days after Passover. So, that's why you get, uh, it, so that's why it became Pentecost, being 50th. And as you recall, it's about 50 days or so since there was the Passover, the night on which Jesus was betrayed. So what what was the original festival? Well, the farmers were supposed to bring the first fruits, the best of the bests, and present them to the Lord. They were to go before the priest. They were to go before the temple and give a liturgy of recitation. So they were supposed to recite something. And this specifically is what they were supposed to write from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 3. It says, And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. So this was an acknowledgement of what God had given them. He had brought them from slavery, from death, into the promised land. 
This was to be a remembrance of glory. But here's the problem. They were supposed to say this in Hebrew. Now, you might think, well, what's the deal, right? They were Israelites. They spoke Hebrew. Not necessarily. You have to understand, they came from many different countries. And because they came from many different countries, there were many different native languages spoken. In the book of Acts, it talks about at least 15 different languages were there that day. So imagine you're in the Old Testament, you're coming before the the priest at the temple, and you're supposed to recite Hebrew, and you don't know it. It's difficult, right? So what the priest said is, well, I will recite a little phrase, and then you will recite a little phrase, and we'll go back and forth until we complete what you're supposed to say. Now, can you imagine if you came up to communion and you had to recite a Latin phrase, a full sentence, it would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? And you would probably not come, you'd rather forego communion rather than come up and stumble through Latin. You get the idea. People were embarrassed, so they stopped presenting their offering before the priest. So the priest said, well, we we got to do something. And they said, all right, you come, we'll simply recite it. So they would recite something in Hebrew, and the person who was listening had no understanding of what was being said. This is the issue. They were supposed to confess the glory of the Lord, what he had done for them, and they couldn't confess. They couldn't understand, and because they couldn't understand, there was no confession unto the Lord. This is the historical context, in brief, of Pentecost. But this day that we're talking about in Acts was a different day. This day was different because the disciples had all come together, the apostles had all come together in one room. And this is what it says in Acts. Actually, I'm going to start, I'm going to read two through four. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All of those different languages, they could understand it now. And because they could understand it, they could confess. You have to understand, this was a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not like they took a Rosetta Stone course right before this day. The disciples were probably speaking Aramaic, and all of a sudden, they were speaking Egyptian or any one of the other languages. So this is a miraculous gift that occurred. But see, here's the thing about Pentecost. A lot of people get so wrapped up in the miraculous signs and wonders about the fire, about the wind, about the speaking in tongues. But what was the greatest? What was the greatest miracle of all? Salvation in Christ Jesus. The great miracle of Pentecost is that through the testimony of Peter and the disciples, People heard the good news about Jesus, and thousands came to saving faith in Jesus. That's why it is such a day of glory. 
So now we are going to do about half of Peter's testimony. Because it really is a testimony. We would say a sermon, but it's certainly a testimony. And maybe next year I'll do the other half. But this year we're going to do the first half. And what you're going to find is pretty interesting. You're going to find that, one, it is Bible-based, that it is Christ-centered, and that it is gospel-focused. That should sound a little familiar for those who have been here because that's really what we're talking about. Bible-based, Christ-centered, gospel-focused. And in fact, Peter's sermon is really the template for all Christian sermons. So let's begin. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Look, you got all these different languages being spoken. Some people said you're drunk. Peter said, look, it's 9 a.m., third hour of the day. We are not drunk. So he gets their attention. He refutes that there's something alcohol-related going on. And I want you to notice he begins his testimony with Scripture. He goes specifically to the book of Joel. It says this, and this is Peter quoting here, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Notice, Peter did not start off with a joke, right? To warm up the audience a little bit. He didn't start off with a personal story about his own testimony. He didn't start off with philosophy or politics or anything else. What does he start with? God's Word. He starts with God's Word. And not only God's Word, he uses the Old Testament right up front. Now, can you imagine that? Starting just a sermon with the Old Testament? Wouldn't you lose people along the way? But see, Peter knows that this is God's word being fulfilled. And so he starts off with what is the most powerful thing, the fulfillment of God's word. You know, there are a lot of people who want to jettison the Old Testament, that it doesn't matter anymore. I don't know if you know of Andy Stanley. He is the pastor, and he's the son of the late Charles Stanley. He has a very large church, Andy Stanley, and he has famously, wrongly, but famously said, we must unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, as if it doesn't doesn't matter. Well, what did Peter start with? Peter started with the book of Joel. How many of you know the book of Joel, by the way? Last time you read it, right? Not necessarily the most familiar book that he could have started with, but he did. He started with the book of Joel because he knew 
that the prophet Joel referenced things that God fulfilled. Peter references the prophet Joel to show that what God has said is being fulfilled. By the way, if you want to know, the book of Joel is short. You can read it in one sitting, three chapters. Not long, right? It was written about 900 years before Jesus was crucified and rose again. Think about that. 900 years until this prophecy was fulfilled. And the book of Joel, by the way, is not just a nice little book. It's really about repentance and coming back to the Lord. So Peter quotes Joel. And he talks about three different things, really, that we're going to cover. One, last days, prophecy, and visions. He talks about that this day, the day that they are experiencing in Acts, he says, this is the last days. There's a demarcation that Peter says, there was a time before that was not the last days, and now this Today is the last days. So what specifically are the last days? The last days, it's a period of the world which is ushered in by the first coming of Christ and continues until his second coming for judgment. We are in the last days. And it was ushered in by Jesus. Hebrews Chapter 1 says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. You and I are living in the last days. <laughs> Actually, really, with everything going on in the world, that conversation's come up a little bit more, hasn't it? Are we in the last days? Is this the last times? Look, it's not Armageddon. We don't have that last big battle right now. And I don't know exactly when the last day will be. By the way, nobody does. And if they tell you and they're a pastor, run away from them because they don't know either. But yeah, we are in the last days. Everything from when Christ died, rose, and ascended to now, to his second coming, that's the last days. So I don't know about you, knowing that gives me some urgency. Not just like, oh, it's just going to go on. No, we, we are in the last days. So there is some urgency. And he says this, during this time, God will pour out his spirit on men and women, sons and daughters, and many will come to faith in Christ Jesus. See, that's the whole point. That's the whole point that Joel is talking about, that Joel is writing about under the power of the Holy Spirit. It says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All of the prophecy, all of the signs, all of the wonders for the sake of your salvation. Look, there are a lot of churches nowadays that say they have signs and wonders, but they don't point to Christ Jesus. 
They point to self. You see, if you take a look at the Old Testament prophets, man, they're different from what people claim to be as prophets nowadays. Very, very different. If you take a look at the Old Testament prophets, their chief task was to confront people's sin, to bring them to repentance, and so restore them to a right relationship with God. That's the role of a prophet. But that's not what kind of prophets or prophecy we have in so many churches nowadays. The prophets and prophecies that a lot of uh, people give out nowadays is very similar to fortune-telling. People will say, oh, I have a word from the Lord that you're going to marry so-and-so, or that you're going to get that job, or you're going to get a new guitar so you can play your song. I remember some so-called prophet. Isn't that fortune-telling? I mean, that's about the same thing. Does it confront their sins? Does it lead them to repentance? Does it bring them to greater faith in Christ Jesus? That's really what prophecy is all about. See, the Old Testament prophets were forth-tellers, F-O-R-T-H, forth-tellers. And they would say, thus says the Lord, repent and return to him. So, any pastor, any preacher who confronts sin, who says, thus says the Lord, that's the modern-day prophet. Now, let's talk about visions, okay? Just as prophecy and prophets have been so skewed in our culture, so have visions. People are chasing visions Again, for jobs, for marriage, for politics, for whatever the case may be. And they're chasing those visions, but it's, it's kind of like New Age stuff. How many of you remember the musical Hair? Remember that? The Age of Aquarius? So here's, this is an, this is an oldie now. This is part from Age of Aquarius. Golden living, dreams of vision, mystic crystal revelation, and the mind's true liberation. Aquarius, Aquarius. (laughs) I'm not going to sing it. But um, that's the kind of visions that people chase after nowadays. And the thing is, when you get churches full of prophets and visions and dreams like that, it's not about God. It's about self, and it becomes self-idolatry. What were real visions of God like? They were scary. A vision from God scared people. Just read Ezekiel. Go to Isaiah. Go to Jeremiah. If you really want to get scared, read Revelation chapter 6, where John has the vision of the Lamb of of God unrolling, breaking the seals and unrolling the scroll. Man, it is not a good vision, and he's scared to death. Do you, want, do you want that vision from God? See, we are warned about this, and it's not just today. If you think I'm just harping about today, like we are somehow worse than before, no, it's been that way throughout. In fact, this is what the Lord said to Jeremiah. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own mind, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they shall say, no disaster shall come upon you. Right? That was in Jeremiah's time. It's still very appropriate for our time. Now, does that mean that people don't have miracles? That they, there aren't visions? That there aren't? No, all of that still occurs. But you have to understand it's not an everyday occurrence. Even in the Bible, it wasn't an everyday occurrence. Now, the Bible doesn't record all the mundane stuff. Well, it's Monday. I woke up around 8, washed, got some breakfast, talked to my wife a little bit, had to fix the axle on the cart. I didn't have the right part. I had to go to the hardware store. Sorry, mixing a little. That wasn't funny, was it? Okay. But, um, but you get the idea. It just doesn't record the mundane things. It records the important part so it looks like there's a miracle or sign or wonder happening every single minute. Do miracles still happen? Yes. Does God still guide us through the Holy Spirit? Yes. Does it happen to everybody every time, every day? No, it doesn't, does it? Otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle, would it? Just be something commonplace. So what you have to understand here is the Holy Spirit will work and move according to his will. That's it. Now, Peter quotes Joel, and there's a part of this that's not fulfilled. Verse 19 and 20. And I will show wonders in heavens and above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So a lot of people point to this and say, well, Peter quoted that, but it hasn't come true yet. And that is an issue for some people. It's not an issue for me. Remember, we are in the last days. And so there are prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, just plain and simple. So what Peter is doing, he's saying, Joel, what Joel said about the last days, this part, this part is true. This very day. That's what you're seeing. You're not seeing drunk people talking. You're seeing the hand of the Lord at work, his power. And once he sets the stage, he turns his testimony to Jesus. For he is Christ-centered and gospel-focused. He begins this way. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter's testimony, more than anything, focuses on Jesus on the Christ, the Messiah, the one who died, rose again, all for you, 
for your salvation so that you are no longer condemned by sin. See, a lot of people, when they think about testimony, they think they have to have this great testimony and that their testimony is the gospel. The truth is, whatever testimony I give about my own life might be good, but it's not the gospel. It is Christ-centered, and so we must focus on that, on who is Jesus. Really, that's the question to have with everybody is, well, who do you say Jesus is? You don't have to attack them, but it gets to the, really the heart of the matter, doesn't it? It breaks through all of the other things. Who is Jesus? That's the question that really matters. And Peter says, you know him. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. So, we don't know Jesus' last name, but people were referred to by where they came from. So, Jesus of Nazareth, and you know him. And on the cross, it's said in three different languages, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So, Peter said, you know who I'm talking about. And you've heard, and maybe even some of you have seen, all of his signs and wonders and the power that he had, the things that he did. See, all of those are not simply by a man. They are attested to by God, which means they are confirmed by God. So Peter's testimony does not rest on how wonderful, smart, Remember, Peter didn't even go to seminary, although he had the best teacher in the world, right? Jesus, and he was with him for three years. That's seminary. But he says, it doesn't rest on me. It rests on Jesus. And this is all confirmed by God. It's the power of God who confirms all of this. He didn't raise He didn't raise the dead. He didn't give blight to sign. He didn't heal the lame. He didn't heal... Heal though, sorry, I'm excited. I've been so excited about this sermon. I got to tell you, I just am. It has moved me. Okay. He points to God and he tells them, You yourselves saw this. You heard things that Jesus gave sight to the blind, raised the dead, healed the lame, fed those in need, and everything is attested to by God. Everything that Jesus did was according to the Father's will. This was all planned out. It is God's definite plan. It was created before creation, before the world began, before anything happened. This is God's design. And Peter says this then about Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen, everything that happened was not by accident. God is the author of creation. He is the author of salvation. He is the author of your Redemption. And you were the ones who crucified Jesus. Now hold on. I'm the one who crucified Jesus? 
I wasn't there. I didn't put nails into his hands or his feet. I didn't raise him on the cross. I didn't stab him in the side with a spear. How could you say that I crucified him? I mean, this would have been the same thought that the crowd would have had. How could I have crucified him? I didn't nail him to the cross. The Roman soldiers did. I don't bear any of the guilt of his crucifixion. But Peter says, you're responsible. You. Your sin is responsible. Your sin is responsible for the lawless men who nailed him to the cross. I don't know how many of you remember or know that song, How Deep the Father's Love. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know it is finished. Behold the man upon the cross. It was my sin that held him there. But this is not the end of the story. This is not the end by any means. In verse 24, it says, God raised him up. It almost should say, but God. It has that same force, but God. Though we have sinned, though there is lawlessness, lawlessness, but God. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The curse of sin has been lifted because of Christ Jesus and what he did for you. You see, Peter ultimately is preaching the good news. He is preaching the gospel. In Christ Jesus, you've been forgiven. The curse of death has been broken forevermore. This is the good, good news. I think that's perhaps why I'm so excited about this. I mean, I really, I, I, I don't have a reason other than the work of the Holy Spirit here to be excited by this, but I am. I found myself just even getting chills thinking, reading about this. You see, there's more to the story, but the people who heard what Peter preached, the testimony of Christ Jesus, God's word being fulfilled, forgiveness of sin, it overcame them. And they were struck to the heart. And they said, what shall I do? What shall I do? And Peter said this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the promise for you, for your children. To heed that call this very day. You see, in February, there was a revival in a small college called Asbury. Ashbury? Ashbury? Sorry, I can't remember the name right now. But it started because it was just a normal chapel service. 
But one young man was moved to repentance, and he came before the crowd, the group that was there, and he repented of his sins. And people were struck to the heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it points you to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So this day, this day is a day of glory. And if you have not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, today's the day to receive him, to repent, to come before him, to confess him as Lord and Savior. And here's what you do. Go through the testimony of scriptures. Look at the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Look to the cross where your guilt was paid. For lawlessness, he died then look to the tomb. Don't stop just at the cross, but look to the tomb. And then look to heavenward where he sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. If today is the day, repent and believe. And if you've already received Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior, then hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. But know this, that you too can be a witness of the wonderful good news of Christ Jesus. You don't have to have gone through seminary to do this. You don't have to have a perfect life in which all your ducks are in a row. You too can simply speak about the goodness of Christ Jesus and what he has done for you and what he has done for all who believe. This is the good news this day. This is the glory of Pentecost. Amen.